0: Hi everybody, it's Toby Miller here. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm in London's Exmouth Market at a place called Caravan, and I'm here with a new friend, Christina Sharp. We just started recording, but whereas we definitely started recording, <laughs> the recording device did not definitely start recording, but now it definitely is. And I asked Christina whether I was pronouncing her name correctly, and she said yes. By the way, they're both your waters. That was ah, given to okay. me, but I didn't have any. Okay, thank you. And And then I asked her about her current moment of prominence in the British bourgeois media, and she was just explaining this relates to International Women's Day, which was last Friday here in 2013. So I just wondered if you could pick up the story for us, yes. Christina, and sorry um, for the interruption.
1: No, thank you. Um, I had my debut in the Daily Mail on the front page of their online website, um, And there was a picture of me, and right next to the headline is this, The Death of Feminism, in which the Daily Mail reported about my research.
0: With you as a kind of coffin.
1: Yeah, well, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wasn't dressed or in
0: black. Or
1: um, Some friends of mine said they used me as eye candy, which I'm not sure they did, but that's a nice interpretation. Wow. <laughs> um, but they used my picture from my King's College website. Apparently, they're allowed to do that. I'm sure they are. Um, it came to me as a bit of a shock. I felt it was quite personal to be on sure. the Daily Mail. Um, yeah.
0: Now, um, I want to just yeah. interrupting for a second, yeah, Christina. Sure. Uh, we have listeners in about 50 different countries. Yes. Not all of whom will know the Daily Mail, although it is now the most successful news website in the English language. Because in the United States, where it's a completely different style of website, it's the most visited newspaper ahead of the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Guardian, which are the other three major ones. And the Daily Mail in the U.S. is basically T.N.A. and celebrity stuff. But here, could you situate it for international listeners? Because in Britain, it has a very particular meaning and place in the firmament. Yes. Doesn't it? (laughs) These questions
1: always make me feel a bit insecure because I'm not British. So I hope I'm going to situate it correctly. But I would say... The Daily Mail is a tabloid, so it's not a broadsheet, it's not The Guardian or The Time. It's not known for its quality journalism necessarily. Um, It has a very wide readership here too. It's more conservative, I would say, than it is progressive or, as Americans would say, liberal.
0: And is, is it aimed at a particular class fraction at all, would you say? or No. Compared, because the other conservative okay, newspapers yeah. are the Sun, yeah. which yeah. is clearly working class, yeah. the Daily Telegraph, which yeah. is clearly ruling class, and the Times, mm. which used to be ruling class and now is who knows.
1: Mm-hmm. I would say Daily Mail perhaps lower middle class. Lower middle class, class. Lower yeah, class, yeah. I think yeah. to
0: working yeah. class. I think that's right. Yeah. And it's yeah. it's it's run uh, by an editor, Paul Dacre, who is notorious for his misogyny mm-hmm. uh, and his anti-immigrant attitudes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, yeah, I think it's fair to say.
1: Yeah. So anyway, yeah
0: there you are as yeah. eye candy, your yeah. friends are saying. How did yeah. you feel when that term was used?
1: Well, I have to say, honestly, part of me felt flattered. Um, the other part, of course, felt, well, this is a research about, an article about my research on feminism. <laughs> I don't want to be used as eye candy uh, in my professional capacity when I talk about my research. Um, so I felt ambivalent about it, definitely. And I felt it was quite personal, what that a picture of me. And
0: yeah. this death of feminism, end of feminism discourse, what, what was the male saying?
1: May uh, reported on the Sharp Report, which doesn't exist, but now it does, performatively brought into <laughs> life.
0: An Austinian speech act Exactly, moment.
1: yeah. <laughs> um, basically, I did research on young women's engagements with feminism. I asked them how they felt about feminism, what they associated with it, whether they call themselves a feminist. I spoke to women in Germany and Britain and London and Berlin from different class backgrounds, different racial backgrounds, bi, lesbian, straight. Um, And most of them didn't like feminism. So, um, in a press release I'd written, um, kind of to tag it on to International Women's Day, I reported on this research, Um, and of course the Daily Mail kind of liked its main findings, right, that feminism is unpopular, Um, so this is what they reported on. In reporting on it, they left out all the critical bits of my research, which was to say that it's sad that feminism is such a contested term, and... um, that I am a feminist and that didn't come through, I think. And that's what uh, I found really um, disturbing. In the
0: yeah, more yeah. than the yeah. eye candy thing about yeah. which you were ambivalent.
1: Yeah. Yeah. On
0: this it's, it's outrageous because your mm-hmm. research is being understood uh, out of context and based yes. apparently purely on a particular interpretation of the press release yes. that you put out. Yeah. Although yeah. this is the risk with press releases.
1: Yeah, 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 and that was an interesting <laughs> learning experience, I would say. I had discussed that press release while um, my research was funded by the Economic and Social Research Council.
0: Which is a, a state-run but arm's length research body of the mm-hmm. British government, but populated by academics and operating via
1: peer review. Yes. Exactly, yeah. And they were keen on putting out a press release. Um, so this is why I wrote a press release. And I did, I mean, my research in part talks about that myth of the man hating feminist, the lesbian feminist, you know, the feminazi and so on. And I very much talk about that as a myth and as a stereotype and a kind of fiction Um, And I was worried in putting out that press release whether people would just interpret that as a kind of confirmation of already existing stereotypes rather than as something that really wants to engage with why we have those stereotypes and why they are so so prevalent. yeah, and so I discussed those fears with the press officers but um, was advised that it would be fine
0: because <laughs> of course clearly yeah. anybody who works for the Economic and Social Research Council doing press releases is one of the top PR people in the world where else would they be? sorry no, comment. Yeah, no comment well I'm commenting uh, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: No, um, yeah so, so that was My fears were then more or less confirmed, although I also had some more positive coverage in
0: blogs. Tell us about the other coverage in blogs. Um,
1: Well, there was one blog, the science blog. He did an interview with me. That was good. Um, There was another feminist blog who deconstructed the Daily Mail article. Would it what have been was, an excellent paper. <laughs>
0: where would people find those blogs? Can you remember their details at all? I mean, don't mean the full address, yeah. but just some pointers no, perhaps?
1: I can't. I'm sorry. But
0: there's a feminist blog that yeah. talks about the Sharp yeah. Report. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Which is S-C-H-A-R-F-F. Yes. Although it doesn't yeah. exist.
1: <laughs> no, it doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah. And
0: would mention um. the Daily Mail, which is M-A-I-L, although many people <laughs> spell it yeah. homonymically. Yeah. 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 yeah, so... Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, um, that was positive coverage. Um, I got a few phone calls as well. Um, The Guardian referenced my research too in their weekly research section. Yes. They didn't say anything about it. They just linked it to the King's College website um, and their press release. I also appeared on an anti-feminist blog. Interestingly, I can remember the name of that guy. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Mike Buchanan. He is in the part of the Anti-Feminist League. So he talked about my research. She keeps sending me emails. Does um, he
0: regard you as a sister in eye candy? Then? Yeah, I
1: guess. I don't know. I, I, I take it as a slight provocation that she sends me these emails um, because he read the press release. So in that release it was very clear I'm a feminist yes.
0: academic. Um, I'm not aware... Yes. I, I don't know the Anti-Feminist League. Yeah, well... Actually, I don't know um, what it is.
1: It's uh, well. He wrote a book about uh, the oppression of men, I think, in society.
0: I've always found it tough myself, so I'm instinctively with them.
1: Yeah, (laughs) Um, which made me so angry when I saw it. I didn't investigate it much further. I, I think. That is in part what motivated me to do the research, I get, I find that reactions to feminism can be very hostile and very affective, so you know, it's not some rational disagreement of like, yeah, okay, I can see there's an issue, but I really don't care. I think there's something more going on there, that's why I talk about repudiations of feminism. Um, And I've had enough of that on some level, so I didn't want to read that guy's stuff. I just felt I'm not going to engage at this stage.
0: But what is the anti-feminist league? I mean, is it one guy sitting in a basement feeling sorry for himself and not Probably, washing off? Yeah, him? Yeah. yeah, so it's not yeah. something we should know Although,
1: about. He did appear on BBC Radio 2 last week. You see, he then added me onto his mailing list and I received about an email each day from him. Uh, one email each day where he updated me on his most recent media appearances. (laughs)
0: No, no, no. All right. Okay. So. Okay. This is not someone who'll be appearing on the podcast and nor would he wish to and how would it help him anyway? Yeah. So, you got quite a bit of attention. In terms of the Daily Mail piece, Mm -hmm. have you communicated with the paper since? No. No. I
1: I contacted the press office at King's College that time um, and asked whether there was anything I could do. But they said, if I didn't really misquote you, apparently there's not much I can do. Um, and I then decided not to, to just ignore it as much as I could. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, yeah.
0: Now, let's get to the research itself, because yeah. this has been obscured by the clouds of the bourgeois media yeah. and <laughs> right-wing men, anti-feminist men. You said you did find that the young women you spoke to in Berlin and London from all kinds of different social identities Mm -hmm. and in a controlled sample, I mean, a random sample, I'm assuming. Yeah, but small,
1: very small, 40 people only. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. Actually were Mm anti-feminist. What did they mean by that? Was that their term or was that your term?
1: No wouldn't use that term. I would say they rejected feminism or didn't endorse it or negotiated it in particular ways.
0: Um, oh, so, I'm sorry, wh- which yeah. word did you use? I apologise um,
1: for that. Repudiations of feminism. No, I, I know I you use. said that in general sorry, but yeah. when you said that... Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I said they didn't identify as feminists. Didn't identify as feminists, okay, so they don't identify as feminists, yeah. Because that's, of course, a tricky thing, you know, you can, and this is an argument I make, a lot of them, of course, are totally for gender equality, actually all of them. Um, Most of them were aware that there were still gender inequalities, such as the pay gap, they often talked about that, Um, but then 30 out of the 40 I interviewed didn't want to call themselves feminists for various reasons. Eight um, said they would call themselves a feminist, but only if they weren't seen as a man-hater or, you know, they would be a passive feminist or not an aggressive feminist, so they used several provisos to make that claim and two said they were feminists.
0: So, tell us what you mean when you use this term repudiation of feminism.
1: Yeah, um... <laughs> like that term because it references something affective, slightly emotional maybe. Um, I wouldn't go as far as to say that it's unconscious because that's maybe overly psychoanalytic, but I do draw on some psychoanalytic theories uh, when I talk about repudiation as well. Um, I draw on Angela McRobbie's work on post-feminism. She talks about the repudiation of feminism as well, so um, this is the kind of theoretical trajectory that term is embedded in for
0: me. Mm. Yeah. And you've mentioned a couple of times that they don't want to appear as man-hating. Uh-huh. This is a term that I remember from 40 years ago, and yeah. I must admit I've barely heard since. Yeah. Is this very common yeah. in Europe, this terminology? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. feminists our man haters aren't there. Yeah, yeah. I think that that was that was a quote of one of the research participants. Yeah, yeah. Um, in Germany, you would talk about women who don't like men or manz manzweiber. But, yeah, no, definitely a term that came up in the UK context in English, yeah.
0: And this is a cross-class
1: yeah. race, yeah. education? Uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There were some research participants in Germany who weren't familiar with the term feminism. They came, they came from a less privileged economic background. They didn't have education, up on, they, uh, they went to school for about nine years. Or up until the age of 18, because then you don't have to continue. Um, they weren't familiar with the concept of feminism per se, although some of them were then familiar with the women's movement. So, and I didn't presume that people would know what feminism was. So I asked them whether I'd heard of that term, and then I asked them what they, yeah, what they thought it was, what they associated with it, how it made them feel, and so on. So,
0: yeah. Wow. And- So what do you attribute this tendency?
1: (laughs) Um, You mean to reject feminism in general, or to associate it with men-haters? Both. Okay. Um, Rejections of feminism is a broader question, I can say more about that in a second, but um, so, the association with man-haters is really interesting because that came up
0: a lot. <laughs> oh, I, I, no, I'm <laughs> laughing because it just feels archaeological to okay, me. Yeah. I really cannot yeah. believe this no, yeah. term is used. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, um,
1: and I analysed that also in conjunction with the association of feminism of lesbian women, with unfeminine women, so what uh, women said, the, what the research participants said in that context was then bra burners, women who don't shave their armpits, women who wear dundries, who don't look feminine, who don't have long hair, who don't wear lipstick, those kind of things, Um, who have short hair, butch lesbians. Some people use the word butch, although it doesn't exist in German as such, so they would use slightly different terminology. So I consider these things together, and what was really interesting is that they made these associations a lot, and then when I asked them, "So can you think of anybody who corresponds to that?" couldn't think of anybody, um, but they would still always say it. <laughs> um, so I then theorize these associations of feminism as a figure, um, as a constitutive outside of heterosexual conventions. It's a woman who is unfeminine, a woman who doesn't like men. Uh, a doesn't woman like men. Who likes in terms of R-
0: romantically, sexually, or yeah, in general terms, yeah, I use terms? queer
1: theory, so I talk about desire as a structuring principle. Sure, yeah.
0: but what about?
1: So, yeah. Uh,
0: yes. Okay. What about? A separatist feminism. Mm-hmm. Is this something that they're familiar with as a concept? No. no. no so no. it's not no. a political yeah, maneuver no. in no. the capital P yeah. political sense of that yeah.
1: movement. No, no. I think it's really a chain of associations that they think of a woman who doesn't like men, which evokes lesbianism, which then evokes unfemininity because you know if you think about the heterosexual matrix. A woman as desiring as
0: the structural. I have to say I've I've never met <laughs> a lesbian who didn't like men. I've met yeah. plenty of straight yeah. women who didn't yeah. like men.
1: <laughs> exactly. This is a point that that is often made in that context. Exactly. And Sorry I to mean, be so
0: boring, personal and yeah, boring, but no. I have to. I feel blind somehow I, yeah, to say it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No. I think I think it's very important to say that. Yeah. Um, and that's why I think queer, queer theory is so important as an analytical framework because it really reveals these homophobic and heteronormative assumptions underpinning those yeah. associations.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, and also the notion yeah. that these that you know, the the butch-lesbian model that you've Mm. referred to would be in somehow or other drawing from a model of working-class masculinity, whereas some Mm. queer theorists would argue that it actually helps to inform Mm-hmm. A working-class model of masculinity. Mm-hmm. It's not a trope. It's actually generative. Yeah. In even okay. Yeah. So, so that's yeah. what
1: they, they mean yeah.
0: by manhood.
1: Yeah. So I think more, much more of a figure. It's a sexual.
0: It's a sexual thing. Yeah. And it's yeah. about a particular physical. Domain. Deportment of mm-hmm. femininity.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Very specific. Okay. Yeah. Now, what about yeah. the repudiation part?
1: Yeah. So. Which is a
0: more, I guess more complicated thing, probably.
1: Yeah. I mean, the repudiation part in general. I think there are several dimensions to it. So there yes. is the sphere of the transgression of heterosexual norms. I think that is associated with feminism, and that comes out in that context. So if I would ask them about their views of lesbians, they said no problem, totally to pro gay, and so on. So that was interesting. Individual
0: acceptance. Yeah, of
1: individual acceptance of difference. However, in the context of feminism, being gay and not liking men became something quite scary that they wouldn't want to be associated with. So I came; it was verbalized in a different context rather than. So that's interesting. Um, the other important dimension to it I think is individualization, neoliberalism, so that a lot of them were aware of inequalities but said they could manage them themselves. So they didn't need a collective movement. They would make sure themselves that they wouldn't get paid less than their counterparts.
0: You've come a long way baby, here's yeah. your own cigarette. Exactly. As Virginia Slims said <laughs> in the 70s. Yeah.
1: Fantastic. Well, good
0: luck, girls. Yeah, yeah. You know?
1: Yeah. Um, And that was very interesting because they were really invested in portraying themselves as empowered. And in that context, they then often drew on other women who are totally oppressed. Suddenly they would use politicized language. They would use terms such as patriarchy that never appeared in relation to their own lives or to a Western context. Um, They would often talk about Muslim women as being very oppressed, Um, so using a very neo-colonial discourse, constructing other women as oppressed, Western women as free, I then make the argument that they can only portray themselves as empowered by distinguishing or separating themselves from the other, so kind of dialogical, uh, dialectical self-presentation,
0: yeah, so...
1: But again, where does this come from? I guess
0: Mm. the bourgeois individual subject is Mm -hmm. the creature of this self-actualizing component of neoliberalism. But there's lots of feminism. There are lots of people who call themselves feminists who are bourgeois individualists to the max, and certainly believe in individual empowerment. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where does there must be some other motor beyond just individuation?
1: No? Yeah. I mean, um, in the United
0: States, there's yeah. a, there are serious minded, ongoing, sizable sorts on feminism all the time in the mm-hmm. bourgeois media. Yeah.
1: And in education. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, two, of the, two of the major sites of feminism, the bourgeois media and mm. education, are two besides the sites most contested and denounced.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. 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 So I don't know what it's like in Germany and the
1: UK. Mm. I mean, coming back to your question about that other motor, I think that um, what Angela McRobbie would argue Rose Gill and so on, who by the way says hello, (laughs) I met her this morning, Um, is that in the current post-feminist neoliberal era, younger women so but that goes up to 35 40 so you know post second wave feminism women the women who can kind of benefit from these games are presented as these ideal empowered subjects so I think the motto for that is how women, younger women, are interpolated. They are now set to be free to go out and work, live their lives, do whatever they want to do. And so they kind of have to live up to that positioning. So the investment in being that person is a kind of living up to that interpolation, I think, if you want to use the adversarian term. Or well, the yeah. French
0: parliamentary term.
1: Yes, is it? <laughs> yeah,
0: that's where it comes from.
1: Ah, okay.
0: Interpolation is in the Revolutionary Assembly uh, when you're called "Hey you" over there, oh. and it means it's your turn to speak. Ah, okay. That's where it's
1: ah, okay. Interesting. But yeah, I know that. yeah,
0: it, that is, um, I'm, I'm sure that is a big part of it.
1: Mm.
0: What is the bourgeois media's coverage of feminism like in Germany? I know that's a very big question, but I'm assuming you've got some knowledge of that. Yeah.
1: Um, I would say that up until fairly recently, up until the mid-late 2000s, feminism wasn't very visible in the media. In Germany you have one well-known public feminist, she's called Alice Schwarzer. She uh, was very, well, has been very active since the late 60s, early 70s, um, founded the one big feminist magazine in Germany, which is called Emma. and. She's very much associated with feminism. She's the public spokesperson. If there is a big debate on feminist issues, she would be invited to talk to us and so on. Problem with her is that she's really Islamophobic, has a very problematic views of pornography, um, and that she doesn't really engage with differences amongst women. I think. Um, so in the last five years I would say there has been a bit of a re-endorsement bit of an upsurge in feminist activism by young women in Germany and that was very much mediated come back to my point so there was a big debate in Germany in 2007 on demographic changes why Germany has such a low birth rate and then some people blamed the women's movement and then there was a bit you know there was a backlash a pro-feminist backlash against that and there were a range of journalists, commentators arguing for the need for a new feminism in Germany come back in recent years, definitely. Um, Charlotte Roach published a very well-known book, Wet which made it onto the Amazon International Best Sellers list, which is an achievement for a book published in Germany, um, where she very openly talks about her body (laughs) and all sorts of issues related to that. Um, And recently... Yeah, I mean, in the media, what doesn't help at the moment in Germany is that our Minister for Family Affairs, Christina Schröder, uh, publicly denounces feminism. Yes,
0: yes, she's something else, isn't she? Yeah,
1: I mean, she is. Yeah. There is a conservative feminism going on in Germany, and there is some, there is a need for research that compares that to, say, what's going on in America, what went on with Sarah Palin and so on. Yeah. But, um... I, yeah, I don't have the necessary knowledge of the United States to conduct that research, but I think. Yeah.
0: Well, if you, if you are interested in yeah. collaborators, I yeah. could suggest some people sometime. Yeah, yeah I was like, once on a panel at a conference that was discussing Nayland Palin, uh-huh. which is the porn video about okay. her. Okay.
1: Some okay.
0: very good people on that panel. Yeah, okay. Uh, what about in the British situation? Um, from yeah. having having looked mm-hmm. at your CV,
1: yeah. my
0: sense is you've spent really your adult life living here mostly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Uh, yeah. you've you've got a a strong adult connection an intellectual yeah. connection to the yeah. British yeah, media. I do. Yeah. yeah,
1: more so than to the German media, I would say. Yeah. Um, in Britain, it's similar, interestingly. Um, and uh, Jonas, Jonathan Dean wrote a really interesting book about that, Contemporary um, Feminist Politics, it's called, in the UK. There's also been a bit of, um, you know, more media interest in feminism in recent years, many more feminist blogs, um, such as The F in the UK, publications such as... Um, uh, the Equality Illusion by mm-hmm. Kat Yard, and so on, um, Natasha Walters, Baby... Barbie dolls, I think it's called, um, living dolls, sorry, um, so there have been several books reclaiming feminism openly, and there has also been a renewed you know, interest in feminist activism, Reclaim Back the Night Marches, Slut Walk, and so on. So something is happening, it's definitely not an outright rejection of feminism. And what's interesting about the media's relationship with feminism really is that you think it was really negative. Right? I mean, often in conversations people say it's the media's fault, yeah. but actually um, there's some quite interesting historical research. Uh, Kathleen Mendes wrote a book on representations of feminism looking at two broadsheets in the UK and in the US between the 60s and 2008 and how they represented feminism and she was surprised to find that it was quite mixed, not outright negative. We should say, by the way,
0: when Christina says broadsheet and tabloid, this varies from country to country, but in some countries, more or less, this describes the class fraction that is targeted by the newspaper and is legible from its physical shape. So tabloids are small, and historically have been targeted at the working class in Britain and in some other European countries. In fact, that's no longer the case. Uh, so there is now the I, which is part of the Independent newspaper group, which is liberal, democrat middle class and is a tabloid physically. But historically that is a distinction whereas the broadsheet is targeting the educated middle class of all political persuasions. The tabloid is in this configuration likely to go for sensationalism, uh, sometimes for uh, objectification of women's bodies as a selling point. It's likely to have a lot of sport. It's likely to be more aimed at a male reader uh, in, in much of its spectacle. It's less likely to have advanced, complex international reportage, for example. And it's likely to have populist positions on things like the, the role of the state in welfare, anti-welfare these positions will be, and also populous positions on things like immigration, which will be anti-immigration. I think that's really very crudely.
1: Yeah.
0: Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah.
0: So this research is looking at broadsheets, which yes. are going to maybe conservative, yeah. but will have serious intellectual yeah, engagement. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or it looks at like the Guardian
1: and the Times in the UK. So Guardian would yeah. be more associated with liberal or left-wing views, yeah. and the Times more with conservative
0: yeah. or yeah. slightly
1: right-wing yeah. views. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, so just, yeah, and other research too. So the media's relationship with feminism, I would say, taking it on board and also rejecting it subtly. Yeah. Which again is encapsulated in that notion of post-feminism and as it's described in feminist media studies.
0: Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. And- yeah. Where does this? Uh, so, in terms of the Schaff report, <laughs> this famous entity that only yeah. exists in the not yeah. even uh, the pages or the web pages of the yeah. Daily Mail. Yeah. Uh, uh, Will your findings be coming out soon in published form, or are they now available for people to read in slightly unvarnished, rather than Daily Mail, Paul Dacre varnishes?
1: Yeah, Yeah, it came out in a book last year that was published last year. It's called Repudiating Feminism, Young Women in the Neoliberal World and it was published by Ashgate and it basically talks about my research. Yeah. Yeah. So.
0: If you're listening to this on iTunes, um, I'll probably be posting a picture of the cover.
1: Yeah, it's got a great picture, yeah, by <laughs> photographer Alex Brew. Um, it has the profile of a young woman on it in black and white and she could be screaming, shouting angrily, but in fact she's laughing at a feminist protest event. So it plays with the ambiguity of, the, of these associations. Yeah. And I,
0: I wanted to pick up on something you said about pornography. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were talking about Islamophobia yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, incorrect line on pornography yeah. on the part of a magazine editor. Yeah. yeah. I, I wondered if, if I could ask you to talk about a couple of areas that seem to me to be complex fault lines over the last 25 years mm. that help to distinguish Pro sex feminism from 70s second wave feminism mm-hmm. and feed into post feminism, namely perspectives on pornography and sex work that I think are at variance with the dominant logics that we got in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So, what would your position be? What would the position be perhaps of your interviewees, mm-hmm. do you think? Um, these, these questions.
1: Yeah, I didn't ask my interviewees about pornography, um, so I wouldn't know. Um, I when I mentioned it just now, I referred to Alisa Schwarzer and I yeah. said problematic because she she runs a campaign that is anti pornography. It says "porno," so no to pornography. And I find that problematic because it doesn't engage with the tricky and complex questions about pornography and with the fact that we should all have a debate about it, I think, an ongoing debate as feminists, being accepting of different views and experiences of it and trying to find some common ground that I think ideally would both acknowledge the important rights of sex workers the agency of sex workers, while at the same time acknowledging that pornography takes place in a specific cultural context that is still characterised by patriarchal norms, so that would be my In
0: In the sex work area we now have lots of ethnographies Mm -hmm. by women in particular, who have funded their doctoral research or their undergrad research by being sex workers and have then written about the experience. There's quite a lot of that. There there may be some by men, but I've not seen it. Uh, So it's become almost a sort of sub-theme in uh, ethnography, Uh, participant observation of this stuff. And I don't know about the situation in Britain or Germany, but in the US, lots of people, when I say lots, this is anecdotal, Uh Pay for grad school, law school, med school through sex work of different Mm kinds. Because it pays well sometimes, you don't pay taxes sometimes, and the fees of course are astronomical for doing this study.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And then there's a separate element which is the claim of empowerment.
1: Mm Which is exactly, I think, where these debates get so heated. Because yeah. you see the need to pay for grad school and the astronomical fees, and I wouldn't want to judge anybody who does that negatively. Um, at the same time, I think we still need to ask whether that's empowerment Um and I'm interested in these claims around empowerment. I currently do research with musicians, that's my new research project, on cultural work. So my one of my key research questions is how entrepreneurial subjectivities are lived out emotionally, so these very self-directed, neoliberal, autonomous selves, how people... Live that emotionally, how they experience it, the kind of consequences it may or may not have, and so on. Um, and they all construct themselves as empowered.
0: Oh. Um, could, could we move yeah. on to that yeah, research area then? That. that would be yeah. interesting yeah. to know. No, about. that would
1: be, yeah, that is sorry, that was a very sudden transition.
0: <laughs> no, no, not at all, and it's yeah. okay. This is meant yeah. to be, as okay. Julia Lesage yeah. apparently calls these things, handmade media. Okay. I don't okay. think it was a clunky transition at all. But there is a relationship here, obviously, between these subjectivities. So let's talk about your study of musicians. What are you trying to do, or what are you doing? What are you hoping to find out, what are you finding
1: out? So when I did my previous research on young women and feminism, as I told you, a lot of them said, I can deal with inequalities myself. And they're presented as these very strong women. And they, one, one, there was one quote where somebody said literally three times, and I'm going to be strong, and I'm going to do it, I can do it. Like literally as if taken from Nike advert, I can just do it, you know. Um, and I then, through that, I became really interested in what it means if you have to do it on your own how that is experienced so I wanted to explore that further and then I chose the context of cultural work to do that because a lot of cultural work as you will know is um, based on this entrepreneurial autonomous worker idea self who does a lot of self-directed work so I decided to interview young women who are positioned as entrepreneurial through public discourse, as we just discussed, as these neoliberal subjects who can benefit from recent changes and from more rights for women. So i interview young women, but I also interview them in the context of cultural work. And I decided to focus on classically trained musicians. (laughs)
0: Classically trained musicians? Yeah. Yeah. And where?
1: In Berlin and London again. Berlin
0: and London again. These are are clearly two of your favorite cities. Yeah,
1: I know. Well, there was more of a reason for that. A, quite frankly, it increases your opportunities to get funding. I got funding for it from the British Academy, if you do something international. Um, And B, Berlin and London are interesting because they are both creative cities, but very different.
0: Maybe, but they have yeah. lots of symphony orchestra players yeah. who are very famous.
1: Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Berlin has more. Um, in Germany, there are still more orchestras who offer permanent employment than in the UK. So there's, and then the living costs are much lower in Berlin. There's social security for artists, which in that sense doesn't exist in the UK yeah. and so on. So. There are some interesting differences. I was interested in exploring the structural feeling in Berlin and London for artists. What it feels like to be, you know, a musician, perhaps freelance their, musician. I remember
0: John so Shepard looked at this for the old East Germany
1: and ah,
0: okay. uh, did a great deal of research on yeah. what it was like in terms of what was a massive subsidy system for oh. rock musicians to yeah. do their thing.
1: Yeah. Much. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. So okay. So the yeah. conditions are somewhat different. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: are somewhat the two different. Cities. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, that's my. Yeah. That's that. They're somewhat different. Exactly. Whether the musicians feel very different about that is a different question. Yeah. But conditions are now,
0: different. Now, of course, yeah. lots of classically trained musicians theoretically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. are going to be in orchestras, large collaborative enterprises,
1: mm-hmm. yeah,
0: that are very far from individuals, mm-hmm. and that in many cases have lifelong employment.
1: Yeah, yeah. But in the UK there's only about five that offer lifelong employment. And if you look at the numbers, you know, of how many... Music graduates there are each year, and how many job openings.
0: Chance you get a permanent contract is. Sure. The, the Guardian had its uh, famous story yeah. a few months ago yeah. of a music graduate who's a scarecrow. Yeah. In the British countryside. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: I mean, I'm not surprised. There, There's a very big and lively and vibrant freelance scene in London yeah, for sure. classical musicians. You
0: should look this up, this yeah. article, it's wonderful. Okay. Look up, okay. you know, Guardian, Music Graduate, Scarecrow. Okay. And he reads novels, okay. he quite uh-huh. likes it. Okay, oh,
1: excellent. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, okay. yeah, of yeah. course, there's
0: a freelance yeah. scene and there yeah. are opportunities.
1: Yeah, there are opportunities. A lot of them teach music. This yeah. is basic, uh, yeah, most music. The for in and I've that. Yeah. it's the only way they can. They have a reliable income. The
0: um, no, point taken, yeah. but the, but for yeah. many people, the the training in classical music mm. is predicated often on the idea yes. of being a exactly. member of an orchestra. Yeah. it's not yeah. predicated on being an individual who's the no. master of your own no. life. Exactly. You're one of seven violinists or yeah. something in a group yeah. of fifty, yeah. aren't you? I mean, yeah. isn't that yeah. the yeah. ideal?
1: Yeah. It's an interesting question. I think there are several ideals. For some, there's the ideal of becoming a soloist, just one. So some conservatoires don't even necessarily train them to become orchestral musicians, but to become soloists. And of course, that's even much less likely than becoming an orchestral musician. So there's that. Then there's, of course, the idea of becoming an orchestral musician. And then there's the reality of having to be a freelance musician who creates their own opportunities, really. I mean, more and more it's going to be like that. If you want to make money, you'll have to organize concerts, you'll have to get funding, you'll have to fight for bands, you'll have to have various ensembles, you have to have a very active marketing website, Twitter, Facebook, and so on. You have to be incredibly well organized, reliable, professional, sociable this is from what I've heard I've already done 60 interviews or so, so um, and this seems to be more pronounced in London than
0: in Berlin mm-hmm. but, um, uh yeah wow yeah, I did a podcast with Miguel Mera who's uh, mm-hmm. Film composer.
1: Okay.
0: Um, here in London a few yeah. weeks ago, and yeah. Miguel was saying, you know, that they're under pressure now. Just never have live musicians. Not necessary.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, just do it on yeah. a computer. Yeah.
1: yeah. And that
0: a staple yeah. of employment for these people is dying really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. is film music.
1: Exactly.
0: Uh, and yeah. session musicianship yeah. of various kinds. Yeah.
1: And, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, very few of the women I interviewed did, did that kind of stuff, yeah. Some of them, the only context in which they mentioned film music was if it was live on stage. I mean, then often it's not even live, but you have to sit, sit there and look pretty... And yeah, and this was a oh. running theme, that they would get hired because they're young and pretty.
0: So you're, you're focusing yeah. on women
1: I'm focusing workers, on it's women not, not workers.
0: only yeah. women, I didn't realize yeah. that part. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, so what are, apart from these institutional differences, mm-hmm. in the, the interviews, what are some of the distinctions you can see between people in Germany and people in London? Yeah. In uh, Britain, so
1: yeah, I mean spontaneously. So this is I'm at a stage in my research where I've conducted most of the interviews mm. over 60, but I haven't analysed them yet. Yeah. So just to kind of <laughs> contextualise that, I would say broadly speaking, they are more entrepreneurial in London. And by entrepreneurial, I talk about it both in terms of you know how entrepreneurialism is conceived of commonsensically, and also in a Foucauldian way. So. Musicians in London were quicker to email me. Um, much, yeah, seem to be much more online, much more plugged into entrepreneurial discourses.
0: You mean more obedient?
1: Maybe, yeah, but also more anxious.
0: Yeah, m- me obedient more anxious. and anxious. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, musicians in Berlin seem to be a bit more sheltered still by institutions. Having said that, um, I. Also interviewed slightly more students in Berlin. This is just, you know, if you do a snowball sampling, it's um, you can't. I didn't find, and it's not comparative research in that straightforward sense, anyway. So, um, but there in Berlin, there were also aware of having to be entrepreneurial. And I spoke to a few musicians who moved from London to Berlin, which is very interesting. For those very reasons, to uh, to pay less rent, to have social security, as in kunstler sozialkasse, that's um. And
0: what sort of age group?
1: Um, Um, anything between anybody really between 24, 23, 24, towards the end of their degrees, final year, up until mid 30s, at the early stages of their career, still setting up their career, but. The ones who were older, one or two, for example, had a child and therefore had a break, so therefore they were older, but they were still, you know, setting up their careers and so on.
0: And you mentioned gender identity and the requirement yeah. to present oneself as girly, I presume. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, how prominent a theme was that? Um, Thank you very much.
1: It, I would say... Quite, I did because I do ask one question in my interviews, which is about how do you feel in that profession as a woman, to kind of see, yeah, whether they feel empowered, whether they think there's any issues around sexism in the industry and so on. And so, in that context, what was very interesting was that a lot of them said, "Oh, it's all fine, you know, it's no problem. Um, I feel I'm being treated equally." Actually, it's an advantage to be a young woman. If you look reasonably pretty, you get a lot of gigs because you are young and pretty. Um, That was one version of that answer, and that came, so in that context, it would come up quite a bit. Um, and another version of that answer was, oh, it's, it's nice to be a woman, no problem at all, never experienced anything. I mean, this one time my teacher sexually harassed me, but, you know, it's fine to be a woman.
0: I should say a context for this here in the yeah. UK is a series of still unresolved, yeah. unfurling scandals mm. about men, mostly men, one or two women polluting, sexually harassing and yeah. violating Scores of women at most, mm. what seems to be most of the top classical music institutions mm. in the country, yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: over a, an at least 30, 40-year yeah. period, yeah. very senior men, um, to the point where uh, the whole model of this kind of musicianship, which is one-on-one teaching, is jeopardised.
1: Yeah. 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 But what's interesting is that there was very... I mean, <laughs> I really wanted to move on from my you know, previous research question about kind of engagements with feminism and sexism and so on, but it was so blatant again in that research that I keep coming back to it. <laughs> so that there was very little acknowledgement of sexism in the industry and inequalities. I mean, look at the good orchestras and how many men there are in the Vienna Philharmonics, in the Berlin Philharmonics still, not very many women.
0: And um, have a look at the scandal enveloping the Vienna Philharmonic at the moment over its constitutive racism, anti-Semitism,
1: exactly. yeah.
0: anti-queer and anti-woman yeah. policies since the year dot.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. The number of people sent yeah. to their deaths yeah. by the Vienna Phil. Yeah. And it's many Nazi Party members.
1: Yeah, yeah, and their and their kind of ideology that you have to be white Austrian, whatever that means, to be able to play Mozart well or whatever. And,
0: and you've got to use certain yeah. instruments and only certain instruments, yeah. which are only available yeah. to a, a few nations and a particular class oh, yeah. fraction.
1: Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. that is a yeah. That is a whole different issue that I also look at. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so I mean I find inequalities with regard to gender, race and class are kind of blatantly obvious and quite visible as well in that world, in the classical music world, and yet they continue to be disavowed and disarticulated.
0: I'm very struck by the uh, star individuation of female performers in the Paschal yeah. music world in Europe nowadays almost all white almost all with long hair
1: mm-hmm. emphasized
0: yeah. femininity mm-hmm. to the max very yeah. sexualized
1: yeah yeah yeah
0: good girls with an option on being bad mm-hmm. girls
1: yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and young. Oh, I, mean, I mean, in opera and, that's know, a big significantly issue. Significantly
0: under 40. Significantly
1: under yeah, 40 yeah, in yeah. opera, that's yeah. an issue when your voice is only formed if you're 30 and you get too old when you're 35. Apparently a lot of Botoxing going on, boot jobs, anxiety about ageing aging amongst female opera singers who also have less roles in operas, so... And of course,
0: more some of the singing requires a certain body shape. And the body yeah. shape isn't necessarily that of this classic heteronormative yeah.
1: physique. No, not necessarily. Physique, yeah, right? I mean, there's a debate about that. I think. I mean, it used to be said that you had to have the big body to have yeah. a big voice. I'm not sure, but definitely, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, there's and a contradiction yeah. there. There's so. a contradiction there, and that is apparently just going to get worse as operas broadcast more of their operas to big cinema screens, and people want to see pretty young women, whatever that means.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so you and, you're, and, you're yeah. trying to repudiate feminism, but you just
1: can't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I really can't. And it's interesting what's <laughs> going on with myself in these interviews. I find it incredibly difficult to listen to that increasingly because I think you know on the one hand you'll know this dilemma well, it's great data if you know they say oh it's all fine but I did get sexually harassed one time I mean this is the classic disclaimer it's it really I think catches the cultural moment we are in aspects of it of course in relation to these particular issues and on the other hand I sit there and I've listened to that, I haven't done the counting as I said but it feels like the majority of interviews would give me that kind of line. I had some that were very outspoken about sexism also great data again all the stories they told me um, but I find that quite difficult and striking and the interesting thing is that uh, yeah, at King's College I recently gave the lecture on inequalities Is King's
0: College London yeah,
1: sorry King's College London part, part okay. of the University of
0: London <laughs> wow. and yeah. a very famous university one of the yeah. sort of top ones in uh, yeah. certainly the UK yeah
1: yeah and we have a large student body very able skilled students um, and I gave the lecture on inequalities in the cultural and creative industries looking at racial inequalities class inequalities I talked about the privilege of working for free if we had to do internships, um, to get access to these sectors, the importance of networking and so on, aesthetic labor, emotional labor. I really tried, uh, and the the global aspect of that. Um, So I really tried to to shed light on different forms of inequalities to speak to them. And apparently in the seminars afterwards, in some seminars at least, there was still a question as to whether that was really an issue. And that struck me because I presented them deliberately with statistics <laughs> and data from different contexts. And um, what, why do you think that is? <laughs> You're shaking your hand.
0: <laughs> uh, Angie Valdivia wrote a very clever piece a few years ago about student evaluations.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: and just everybody knows that scientifically they're worthless. Yeah. Literally worthless. I mean, all the educational research of the last five years shows they're absurd. In this country, the kind of pitiful obedience to the state takes the consumerist form, as we know. So the pitiful obedience and neediness of British academia, especially administrative academia, is best exemplified in that. But one of the things that Angie said was that looking at the way in which if you raised race or gender issues as a woman you got terrible evaluations anecdotally again and again and again in the U.S. Uh, is played out a lot in my experience. Again in the U.S. I wouldn't know here because nowadays people are beginning to problematize this absurdity but they really believed in it for a long time is played out in the way in which, uh, particularly women of colour or queer women, the minute they begin to raise these questions, no matter how objectified their data are, are just pilloried and attacked often Mm -hmm. by other women, younger women, who don't want to hear this stuff. And the more objectified it is, the worse it gets.
1: Mm. Yeah, interesting. And again, there's that issue of not wanting to hear that stuff. And I literally had some research participants just now in that project, so I did these interviews, um, I started in October, so relatively recent, who who literally said that they... Didn't want to believe that gender equalities or inequalities were an issue. So they said, "I don't didn't you want know, to believe." They're well,
0: good on them for being for, that blunt. Actually, yeah. I think that's yeah. great. That's think, a real yeah. way in, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It's no, very, is real, very yeah. productive. Yeah. Honest.
1: Or of saying things like, yeah. "I hope it's not an issue. Maybe it is, but it hasn't." You know, yeah. those kind of don't
0: want to honest. be appear to complain. Yeah. Don't yeah. want to appear to complain.
1: Yeah. Yeah, to get, yeah, and to have to... And I think also, I mean, I haven't thought this through at all, but I think what also plays a role is that maybe I have increasingly the feeling that there is a fear that it might be completely overwhelming. Um, If if you open it up, yeah, if you burst the dam, then that there is a real fear to appear like a complete victim, agency-less... It would end in tears. Vulnerably
0: exposed
1: to these massive structural inequalities, and that it's safer to initially just believe in yourself and the things you can do, and that raises a real dilemma, because who am I to tell them, look at those statistics, feel disempowered, you know, (laughs) I mean, yeah.
0: Getting back to the training they did, I don't know whether you look at this at all, but or whether there are other sources of information about it. Is musical education in the two cities changing to take account of this making a project of the self stuff? Mm -hmm. Or is it still a form of conservatory training that focuses on skills?
1: It's still the latter, I would say. I think recently some music schools, conservatoires, have picked up on the need to provide uh, career-related training. Then the issue is still that also some students aren't interested in it. But still the training overwhelmingly is very much about learning how to play your instrument, so craftsmanship or craftswomanship in that sense. Spending six hours a day in your practice room to perfect your violin playing or whatever instrument it is. As opposed to learning how to write invoices, <laughs> how to present yourself on the web, or whatever it is that you need to do to be successful. A lot of that stuff they said. Um, is what they picked up because they had to learn how to do it. Otherwise, you're just not going to make it. A lot of musicians leave the industry as well after a few years' time, and I think those are the people who can't deal with it. There's a very high degree of attrition in the industry.
0: What do they do?
1: Um, I don't... I don't know of any official statistics on that. The people I spoke to, a lot of them do stuff like um, music therapy, so additional training, still so music-related teaching. So doing a PGCE or something like that. Uh,
0: PGCE?
1: Uh, postgraduate certificate in, in education. Don't ask me on that, but a teaching qualification. A te- to
0: teach in uh, to what teach level? In schools. In sorry. schools. Yeah, yeah, to teach in schools, so no, not at
1: university. To, yeah. to become a school teacher. Yeah. Yeah, um, in music, better. Yeah, so you need an extra qualification. In that. Is
0: there more of that going on here than in Germany because there's a more effective yeah. cultural welfare yeah. system?
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and in Germany there's still more jobs comparatively speaking, although that's also getting fiercely competitive, of course. Because um, yeah, um, and in Germany they don't have the data. I think they have even less data. Than that in here but um, yeah but in Germany the situation is also getting worse so since the renewed yeah. unification happened less orchestras um,
0: did they merge orchestras at all sometimes in Berlin for example yeah.
1: no in Berlin I think there's five big orchestras or so, so that doesn't seem to be merged <laughs> there's just a lot of them yeah
0: but is there a yes, distinction yeah. people draw between East and West and forms of playing or quality no I
1: don't I don't think so. Yeah. Not not nothing that I heard. I interviewed women who grew up both in East and West Germany at the time. Having said that, a lot of them are in their 20s, early 30s, so that wouldn't have. It's irrelevant
0: to them. And of course, now that David Hasselhoff is intervening to save the (laughs) wall, the entire music world of Germany is going to have an additional zest and Mm -hmm. zing to it, Mm -hmm. with thousands of new jobs created.
1: Exactly, let's hope so. I
0: was once on a plane from L.A. to London with the Hoff. Oh really? Yes. So I've seen him over a 14 hour, 11 hour period.
1: What's he like?
0: He is, at least on those occasions, frequently reaching into an overhead bin. For some kind of relief, I assume. So, um, just before I let you go, because we've only got a couple of minutes left, Christine, I wondered if you would tell us a bit about Snowball. Did you use this for both these big projects? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Tell us what you see as the advantages and disadvantages of it, and maybe for those people who are not academics,
1: tell us what it is. Yeah. So basically it's a way of recruiting research participants. Um, it works by asking somebody, you know, so in relation to my musicians project, uh, my sing in a choir, I ask them whether they're new musicians who would fit the people I wanted to interview, so youngish, early career, female, based in London or Berlin. Um, And they then give you context, you speak to these people, and then you ask them whether they know somebody, and this is snowballing, so that you ask the research participants for further context.
0: So the metaphor is that the thing is rolling along and collecting more snow, yeah? Yeah?
1: Exactly, yeah, yeah. advantages and disadvantages. I think often what people would say about it is that it perhaps doesn't lend itself so much to accessing a diverse sample. I have to say, though, for me, the experience was the opposite. I think if you have a really good rapport with a research participant, you can ask them, do you know somebody, a woman who plays the trumpet? And do you know somebody who comes from a working-class background, who is not white, British, or whatever? and. Um, and I found that really useful, actually, um, because through my context, if you, I mean, what I also did, of course, is email, you know, um, I don't want to say too many names, but email observatories to get access to their mailing lists and so on. And I had some responses through that, but it tends to be a particular demographic that I found. And um, so I found it quite useful, actually, in both cases. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and...
0: And in terms of the next step, do you have plans you can divulge to your new public? (laughs) Um,
1: I don't know. It depends. Well, the next step is to read all these transcripts. That's 60 times 20 pages at least, single-spaced, to analyze them, to write articles, to publish a book. That would be the academic route. Um, I'm meeting somebody from Kumba Youth Music that's uh, that's a charity, I think, who's focusing on diversity and access to classical music, so I would like to have impact.
0: Mm. <laughs> impact is a fetish yes. word in British academia. Yeah. No one knows what it means. No. It, some people think it means having 30 seconds on the Today Show, uh-huh. which is a BBC Radio 4 morning show by and about white men, Some people think it's about getting new labour during its time in power to create policies that generated markets and apparently were about the private sector. And some people don't think about it very much at all.
1: No. And some young academics are keen on proving they have impact to get promotions. (laughs) That's (laughs) what you mean.
0: But none of those are in this camp puppy shop. Well, thank you very much, Christina, for entering you, the pod. When you, you have finished writing up and analyzing, and maybe you're about to publish this work, or you have, into these young women working in classical music industries, please come back to the pod, will you?
1: Okay, yes, I will. Thank Great.
0: you. Yeah.